This is Bumping Into, where we have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bumping Into. I am Francis Populin. And in this episode, we are talking to Dr. Ian Billinghurst, the founder of the world-renowned Bath Diet. For those that don't know, the Bath Diet is basically a raw food diet for dogs. Some refer to it as the Wolf Diet, which isn't actually correct because it's far more advanced than that. It's essentially a dog food diet that focuses on a balanced collection of uncooked foods that are best for dogs. No chemicals, no corn, no wheat, no soy, only natural uncooked meats, fats, veggies, along with giving your dog a bone, which is also the title of one of Dr. Ian Billinghurst's books. The Bath Diet is loved by the owners of pets who it has helped overcome various conditions and allergies and diseases. And as most of us listening will know that your dogs or pets do become part of your family. So you do always want what's best for them. The episode starts with Ian's story about how he got started in the industry and his training, um, basically how he got the idea for the diet and how the diet evolved and became essentially what led into the bath business, which you can buy essentially now this diet. So it progressed from book into business. So you don't have to do it yourself. You can buy the frozen patties. So look, the first 25 minutes probably covers most of that. After that, we go into the nuts and bolts of the diet and talk about why it's better, how it works, the differences between that and uh, I suppose more commercialized standard, what we would call today standard uh, a dog food diet. Ian also goes into the changes that you can expect to see in your dog as well once you start on the diet. I give Ian a handful of, I suppose, what I thought was frequently asked questions or would be frequently asked questions, which led into a couple of comparisons. How does the bath compare against the modern range of you know, super premium dry foods and all the rest of the market that has evolved over the years as well? Um, but essentially, you know, the bath does stand on its own in that it is unprocessed. Over the last 30 years, the diet and the bath brand uh, have just continued to grow in popularity. And I'm sure that you're going to find something of value in this episode. G'day, Ian. How are you going? Francis, g'day. Good. Thanks very much for coming on the show, especially nice and early on a Saturday morning. Uh, no problem at all. Uh, hang on. we the video going. Oh, there we go. That's great. And how you been? Oh, um, busy. Old? <laughs> Wet. <laughs> Whereabouts are you located? On Berry, the south coast of New South Wales. Oh, right. Okay. I, I was at so- Bathurst until two years ago. Well, almost two years, oh, uh, which God. I've been there for 20-odd years, but oh, nearly, nearly 30, actually. Um, but for family reasons and... Um, Living on a farm, getting a bit older and too much work, we decided to uh, get closer to the family and uh, leave the work behind. Wow. And you'd be having a proper winter down there, no doubt. We are having a shocking winter. It's all <laughs> rain and cold. It's, um, it's amazing. I, I couldn't believe uh, just how cold this south coast of New South Wales is. But it's a beautiful spot. I used to come down here as a kid. Dad would drive us down. We'd go through all the dairy country um, that's where I developed my love of uh, cattle, I think. 
Oh, so it's obviously the the uh, the green rolling hills, the typical beautiful New South Wales. Very much so, but of course, um, development is buggering that up to a degree. <laughs> yeah, it does everywhere, doesn't it? That's the thing. That's I'm afraid uh, so. I, and I I had a conversation once with a with a, a government minister about that that topic, and I said to him, "Well, what if you've got a whole town that doesn't want to change? It, that they're there because they like it the way it is." And he's like, "Oh, well, they've got to just accept progress. It's it's." You know, we've got actually, to put... um, the town we live in, Berry. Where are you? Are you. I'm on the Gold Coast. Oh, okay. Well, the town we live in, Berry, is a real tourist town, and it's a mecca from for people from Sydney who see it as an old-fashioned town with cafes and coffee shops and bric-a-brac and all that sort of stuff. And so, and the people of Berry actually don't want to change it. Um, yeah. And. So far, they're resisting change, but I'm sure it'll come. It, it is sad. I mean, that's, you know, you want to turn up and see those old shops and those old buildings, and that's why you've turned up there. And then a developer turns up that's and right. says, oh, well, I can knock these down and build something new and three, four times as high. And it's like yeah. well, you, you could have gone anywhere else then. There's got to be that balance. That's right. Yeah. We've got, yeah. to, we've got to preserve something from the past. Not everything, but a lot. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, well, look, what I wanted to do is is obviously I wanted to go into, to, I suppose, a bit of your background and then obviously the bath diet um, go into that. And then I wanted to throw a couple of, I don't know, questions, I suppose you'd say, about uh, the bath versus your traditional, well, traditional is really a wrong term. Let's call it uh, commercialised dog food. Um, and synthetic sort of, or fake industrial food. Yeah, yeah, which which is funny because it's it's almost like why is the term organic a specialty term? Isn't that how it's meant to be? And everything else is the opposite. <laughs> but well, actually, organic's a funny word because um, if you study chemistry, organic chemistry is simply the chemistry of carbon. Um, oh, that's that's what organic means. That it's 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 a, a compound based on carbon. Of course, organics come to being something that's been raised without chemicals pesticides, fertilizers and so on, or too much yeah. interference or any interference by man. But um, but that's that's its actual meaning. Um, and, of course, carbon or carbon dioxide, the most important fertilizer on the planet, if we don't have it, we all die. There isn't that we don't exist because we're built on carbon, has become a dirty word, which is crazy. But a lot of that relates to the soil that... that um, Mankind has been buggering up, particularly broadacre farming um, across America and other places uh, where we've given away what I will call traditional ways of farming, which is small acreages, um, intensive farming, um, multiple varieties of food sources being grown and feeding locally and seasonally. We've, We've got away from all that. And that... Is in fact, is what's buggering our planet. Um, sure, we've we've pushed in a heap of carbon into the atmosphere, but what we need to do is do what we've, the planet has always done, which is drag that carbon out of the air, put it into the soil, feed the soil microbes, which are just way beyond us in terms of numbers and even in mass, like literally tons. They become the sinkhole for the carbon. And then we start feeding the planet. We probably, and this, this, is, this is another topic that's very difficult, we've probably got to look at somehow, given the finite size of the planet, somehow limiting our population. I don't know how yeah. you do that, but um, 
Anyway, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems, but we but politics and money gets in the way of all of it. Oh, it it definitely does, doesn't it? And that's that's the hard thing, then. And yeah, yes. I know where do you where do you even begin to fix that problem in its own? Yes, and then, then then there's even more external problems like Mr. Putin and the the Chinese issue and. The, yeah, and so you kind of despair and crawl back into your hole and say, oh, "I'll just live here and I'll live my life." Because yeah, yeah, to a large degree, apart from talking to people like you and other uh, outlets, it's difficult to make an, an impact. But you have to try. Yeah, I guess that's all you can do. Little hole, living a secure life in good old Oz, which is still the best country on the earth. Well, I'm sure there are people trying to wreck that as well. In fact, I know there are, but yeah, in their own best or in their in what they believe they're doing the right thing. But boy, our, we are in the lucky country, but uh, we could wreck it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we're walking that fine line now, isn't it? It's like um, mm-hmm. it, it's time to fix it, or it's we're really going down the wrong well, path. I think the good thing is that the Earth can repair itself. It took getting back broadly and globally again, and not getting away from just Australia and that. The good thing is the Earth is has this huge regenerative power, but it will sacrifice things in the meantime. That's happened in the past. It's um, yeah. Um, so if we get out of kilter as humans, if we, I think the Earth will end up destroying us. Yeah. Yeah, we don't destroy ourselves in the meantime. There's got to be that balance. I mean, you know, you, yeah. I, I, you look at animals, and there's animals that have got the smarts to be like, well, unless there's everything I need, I won't breed. And you know, and yes. the, the bird builds the nest before it has the babies. And and yeah, there's so many things that are inbuilt. And then you sort of go, well, maybe we need to adopt some of those very basic oh, principles. Do. Yeah, yeah, and, and just stand back a bit and over, over assess it all, and then go forward. Well, you're, you're actually speaking about something that's very close to my heart, which is um, Dobbs Hansky, okay, a Russian geneticist. He came to America, but he made the very important statement that nothing in biology, and we're all biological creatures, makes any sense. Nothing in biology makes any sense except in the light of evolution. And, of course, you just spoke about that. Birds have evolved to make a nest before they breed. And so... Everything we do has actually come about because we've been evolution has brought us to this point. Um, we as humans, evolution has we have evolved to be quite smart up here, but we are trying to outsmart nature, which really just is another word for evolution, which where evolution has brought us to. Um, ecologically speaking, individually speaking, we all are a result of evolution, but we with our superior brain power now, are trying to outsmart, and we're not going to. Yeah. We're not going to outsmart the natural world, the way, the order of things. It will eventually catch up with us, and and it does. Yeah. But but that, again, is getting back to our politics um, and the money. Yeah. Yeah, and isn't that the the grandmaster of um, short-term thinking is the money? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, let's. I wanted to jump into of, of, yeah, some of your background, but obviously, because during that process, it led to you creating the Bath Diet. Um, so, if we go back to the beginning, 
because I, I, you know, I've done a bit of research, obviously, and I can see that you know you come from, uh, I suppose, an agricultural, I suppose, background initially. Is that well, no? A- actually, I, I, I'm a boy that grew up in the Burbs. Oh, um, okay. In Guymere, um, which is a, a southern suburb of Sydney, and I lived there till about 22. But I was always had this uh, romantic vision of farming. I, I just loved the idea of farming. And, and of animals. And if you took me to the Royal Easter Show, which they did every year, I would head straight for the cattle pavilion, wander through that, and through the horse pavilion, and, of course, we went, went to the show bags where I got a minty show bags which had a gun in it. And no, it was, <laughs> <so> <laughs> they I wouldn't have that in anymore. <laughs> oh, no, no. Well, it's a, it was a gun. It was a great little gun. I used to make them afterwards. It just shot out bits of um, round pellets of, of, of cardboard. It was quite a clever little device. It was pretty harmless. Yeah. But um, anyway, um, being... Anyway, so I was this kid. And the other thing about my upbringing was my parents did not like animals. Wow. So I was deprived of animals. I wasn't allowed to have animals. I remember um, when I was probably about, yes, this was a mossman, coming home wet and cold, and I'd found this litter of kittens up the back of where we lived, and I was desperate. Can we have these kittens? Of course, I wasn't allowed. And... uh, all that sort of thing. But I read lots of books, and one of the books I read was um, Dog Crusoe. And Dog Crusoe was about a dog in the wilds of Canada um, based around Hudson Bay. And this dog, and, and I clearly remember reading how this dog would go out in the wild and eat wild animals, and he was crunching the bones and the flesh and eating the blood. And Right. <laughs> so from an early age, I had a vision of how dogs should eat. Yeah. And, of course, in Australia at that time, that is how they did eat. Dogs, when I was a young kid and when I was growing up, um, they ate basically butcher's bones and scraps yeah. and, and meat and table scraps. Yeah. And when I first got married, we I went out bush, being the boy who wanted to go bush, and um, lived on a property out of town, got my first gun, went out shooting rabbits, um, wanted to get some roos. I never actually shot a roo. And I'm pleased about that. Now, I couldn't do it now, by the way. I just It would be impossible for me to go and shoot something. Just yeah, awful. yeah, yeah. Back then at right. 22, out, let loose in the bush with a, with a 22. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was, and of course, we ate the rabbits and, and I had my first dog. Her name was Candy. And she ate rabbits and she ate scraps. And she was the healthiest dog probably ever. And so I, I had this image of how a dog should be fed. Yep. Or, or how, just how, you know, this is what you do with dogs. But I, I'd studied agricultural science and I was an agronomist, but I'd also studied um, nutrition of farm animals. So cattle, sheep, horses, pigs, poultry, all that stuff. So I didn't have, we didn't study in agricultural science uh, the, the, um, the carnivorous way of eating just 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 farm animals and of course farm animals for production to a large degree animals that were going to be slaughtered but anyway so you're getting them as fat as you can as quick as you can to yes move them on and and it was also noted at the time that if you fed them that way into their later years they would become cripples oh wow all sorts of degenerative diseases would go so so and and to make a, a and to cut way forward this is what 
people like AVCO have stemmed from, American Association of Feed Control Efficient, that now controls the way we feed cats and dogs, it's actually based on the process of feeding animals to be slaughtered. So it's not actually food, it's feed, and it's based on grain. But anyway, back then, as I was, um, I had this great desire to either become a doctor or a veterinary surgeon. As it turned out, I became a veterinary surgeon. That's another long story. We won't go into that now. But I fully expected that we would be taught the deep and rigorous science behind feeding um, carnivorous companion animals, cats and dogs. We certainly won't, weren't. And it hasn't changed wow. uh, very much at all. Uh, the training is basically, back then it was, if the, if the um, package says complete and balanced, that's all you have to know. The, the scientists have worked it out. You don't have to do the work. It's, it's, that's, that side of things is all figured out for you. You'll right. be right, mate. Don't worry. Trust the sticker and, on the bag. Um, yes. And, and now if it's AFCO approved, which is basically the same thing, which because AFCO is an industry organisation, uh, industry governing itself, that's always a dangerous thing to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. If it's AFCO approved, then that's absolutely fine. The, the thing is complete and balanced. So anyway, uh, I went into uh, practice with this really ambivalent thinking that this somehow didn't make sense that this we should just look at a bag as, as a professional, that we should know more about nutrition. Anyway, um, I, I went into practice and I found that one of the first things that people asked you was what should you feed your dog or your cat? And, and you know, particularly when they come in for that first vaccination or, you know, that, that first introduction, a lot of them hadn't, uh, usually they were young kids who maybe hadn't had animals, or if they did, mum had always fed them. Yeah. So they were asking this question of you, the professional, who should know? And I was giving this, this half-hearted answer of, well, the profession says we should do it this way, but my experience is that all we had to do was that way. Yeah. Anyway, most of them went the um, professional way, as I found out. Um, and over time, I began to correlate the health of animals with what they were feeding because I, I, now I was questioning them. And the reason I was questioning them was that we, we had an American uh, professor in the penultimate year, in fourth year of veterinary science, and he told us, he said, you know, he said, your clients are going to be your best teachers. Oh, okay. And, uh, and he said, in fact, the client's animals are going to be your best teachers, he said, particularly in nutrition. He said, so when you see a healthy animal come in, ask them what they feed that animal. Now, what he meant was ask what um, brand of pet food they're feeding. And, of course, um, I didn't, I knew that he meant that, but but in my case, it was deeper. I asked them what they were actually feeding. Yeah. And the healthy animals were invariably fed a, a diet based on butcher's scraps, including lots of bones and table scraps. The unhealthy ones, and these were the ones that were paying my bills, the ones that were visiting me a lot, were the ones that fed processed dog food. You know, it didn't take long to put that together. But what really was the crunch for me was we, for some unknown reason, the family wanted to go into dog breeding and dog showing. Breeding, I didn't mind. The showing is an abysmal farce, but that's, that's a whole other story as well. But they said to me, okay, you've been trained. They probably didn't put it this way, but let's, let's go along with this is what they, the guts of what they meant. You've been trained to say to that the best way to feed dogs is with is with um, processed pet food, the, the commercial stuff, the scientifically balanced stuff. So let's do that because 
sure, our dogs seem okay, but they could obviously be a whole lot better if we started to feed them with the processed food. So for two years, I did that. Now, this was before I'd really made the connection between diet and health in my own patients. This was fairly early on. And for two years, my dogs gradually went downhill. For the first time ever, they were, they were showing signs of skin problems and not, nothing major, um, uh, funny uh, ear infections. Their teeth started to develop um, dental caries, or not dental caries, but periodontal disease where they're getting tartar on their teeth. We're starting to get all these minor irritating problems, problems that I, see, I saw every day in the clinic but had never, ever seen in my own animals. And so, of course, I started to really then severely question, and that's when I started to talk to or ask people about what they were feeding, following this um, professor from America's advice. And it soon became patently clear to me that what was happening was that that food was a major cause of illness in our companion animals. I said, wow, this was like a revelation. I tried, there was a a forum that the veterinary profession had at that time was called Control and Therapy, and it still exists. And the vet who started it was a brilliant vet. His name was Tom Hungerford, and he was the head of the Postgraduate Foundation for Veterinary Science, which was responsible for postgraduate training of veterinarians. And he had this forum, and he said, I want you to write down the blood, the dung, and the guts of what you do. He said, I don't care about niceties. I don't care about double-blinded trials or any of that stuff. I want to know what works. Okay, so I wrote in a few articles. At the time, I had been um, studying acupuncture too, so I'd written a few articles on acupuncture, so I was getting used to sending those. And that was another thing. I couldn't believe that um, my inexpert ability to stick pins in animals, which they didn't really like, could actually start to make them appear better, which it did. But anyway, I wrote in about my dietary exploits. Well, absolute deafening silence from the profession. Nobody gave the rats. They were not interested. And I got, actually, I got, I think I got three letters. One one bloke was a a pig vet, and he did a lot of autopsies. He said, oh, I said, yeah, you know, you're right. He said, I I only feed my my dogs on what's left over from autopsying these pigs. He said, they've never never been healthy. He said, they never get a problem with them. He said, I never have to do anything for them. And another vet, whose husband was a, he's a retired vet, but he was working in cancer and she said, and he was, uh, what was his name? Now, the name's gone, but it doesn't matter. Ian, Ian somebody, he had this first name, same as me. He'd lost a leg to bone cancer anyway. He'd researched all that out and he'd changed his diet and he was running a clinic in Melbourne and she wrote in and congratulated me and said, you're absolutely on the right track. Those were the only two I got, except for the new founder of Postgraduate Foundation, Doug Bryden. Doug Bryden had just taken over from Tom Hungerford, and he was very interested in what I had to say. But um, that led to a, a few things with the Postgraduate Foundation, I, and that's. But I won't go into that just at the moment. But basically, I realised that I had to write a book. Because my clients were asking me too, because I because I was talking about this to my clients, and they were, I, I'd given them some little sheets, and they were doing really well. I, I was running a um, a clinical trial with my with my clients by by handing out a diet sheet and saying, "Look, you've got this problem. It's pretty 
bad. We're not doing a great deal of good with drugs and surgery. And you've been, these often people have been to other vets and they heard that I was having success. That kind of mess up, well, look, follow this diet. And what I saw from this was that often without, sometimes these were cases were never fully diagnosed. People couldn't get a handle on what was going on. Vets couldn't get a handle on what was going on. You just had to change the diet. And these problems just disappeared. I mean, one of the first ones was a, a, a red setter who had lost all his coat and uh, he was terribly arthritic and he was only about three or four years old. Oh, geez. And yes. And the, the, so I said, look, I don't know whether this will work. I was very new to this whole thing. I said, but look, here's the diet sheet. Go away and see what you can do. And I didn't see them for six months. And then they come in with this new dog about six months later, fully closed. He bounded up the stairs. I was actually had a practice that was upstairs, could you believe? But anyway, that's all I could get at the time. Um, and the dog bounded in. And I said, oh, what, what happened? And I can't remember his name. What happened to whatever his name was? What do you mean what happened to him? This is him. <laughs> he had made a miraculous recovery simply by changing his diet. And this was, I was continually seeing this. So I thought, right, the, the veterinary profession doesn't want to know. I have to write a book for people. Also, I was getting sick of talking about it. I thought, oh, God, I've got to go through this every time. So I decided to write a book so I could hand the book out or at least sell the book. So I wrote the book, Give Your Dog a Bone. And I remember... Um, I probably wrote about six introductions. All of them were about 30 pages. And one of my clients came in who was sort of in the business of publishing. He said, Ian, you really have to divide it into chapters, mate. Um, so <laughs> he gave me a few points on writing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to put it all in the introduction. So anyway, uh, after a bit of effort and many sleepless nights, I produced this book. And it turned out that a lady in... Um, and, I th- and I've mentioned her name before, so I'll mention it again. Her name was Debbie Tripp. She was a Canadian. And I th- have to thank her a lot because she said, oh, my goodness. She was looking at this going on on the web, and she said, these are like born-again raw. She called them born-again raw <laughs> feeders, B-A-R-F, born-again raw feeders. And that's wow. where the name word barf came from. Anyway, so in the end, she was watching what they had to say, and she was having a few problems with her dog. She was a breeder, I think, of German Shepherds. And so she said, hmm, I'll give it a go. Good old Aussie thing. She was Canadian, but Canadian <laughs> a bit like us. Anyway, she gave it a go, and, and to her amazement, the problems she was having just disappeared. She couldn't believe that either. So she decided it was a bones and raw food diet. Anyway, this was where I came in, and I looked at them, and they said, you should get on this and tell these people. I said, God, there's no way I'm going on that. It was horrific. They were all <laughs> having a go at each other and, and so on and so forth. It was probably worse than it is now, in a sense. But they, Anyway, I looked at them and I said, well, I said, I like this acronym BARF, but let's go more scientific and make it biologically appropriate raw food. So that's, that's the one that I've been sticking with over the years. Anyway, meantime, all this that was being um, uh, happening around the world, people were watching this and doing it, and I was invited to England by a lady called Catherine O'Driscoll. And we, we did some, ended up doing three or four seminars over there, and from that I was invited to the States by a lady called Catherine Chin who, who, who ran a... a um, 
she organised speaking tours by prominent speakers, and she was called Puppy Works. And she invited us over, and we did three months across the states talking about this. Um, of course, it's since that time, um, there's a lot of raw gurus out there now, and, and, and they're all looking, they're making it a, a difficult science because instead of the the simplicity that I produced and showed how to do, what they're doing now is they're saying, well, we've got to follow FEDIAF or AFCO or NRC, National Research Council, uh, FEDIAF's the European mob that um, say what nutrients should be in dog food, very similar to AFCO. Um, anyway, um, so we have all these gurus out there now with spreadsheets and they tell people that unless they're saying what the, the pet food companies say, that unless you get it 100% right, your dog will be out of balance and will mm. die tomorrow from some dreadful uh, disease of malnutrition. Of course, that's absolute rubbish. Real food doesn't work that way. But anyway, so yeah. these days, or, or just recently, I've been asked to join with a few things, and we're just currently doing a raw summit. And I'm going to be doing a masterclass after that summit to teach the actual truth about feeding raw, which doesn't involve any of this Excel spreadsheets or gurus or FEDIAF or NRC or any of that stuff. It just involves a basic knowledge of principles. I mean, I point out to people these days, well, look, you can feed your kids. Well, some people can feed them well, but but (laughs) they get through it. And for for the most part, you have to be pretty drastic to, to make problems. And yeah. In the world of raw, for example, you have to be pretty extreme. The, and there's some basic errors you make, like feeding an all-meat diet, so it's calcium and many other things deficient. It grows up with shocking bones. And But apart from that, if you just follow the basic principles of knowing what a dog ate over evolutionary time, and that includes how it evolved to the present, and I'd do a whole presentation on that, You can, anybody can feed a dog. You, you don't need a PhD. In fact, what I notice is that the people who, the more trained you are in nutrition, and I call it nutritionism, the more you're trained in nutritionism and you worry about individual nutrients, are oh, we getting the manganese right? Have we got the copper right? Oh, it's the iodine right? Mm-hmm. All that stuff. If you do that, if, you, if that's where your training is, you, it is almost impossible for you to understand the basic principles of feeding raw. It's, it's like an, a huge impediment to your thinking. Yeah. Um, somebody who is, is, who is a housewife, who feeds her kids and knows that if she goes down to the butchers and gets some bones and a bit of organ meat and food scraps, throws it to the dog, the dog does just fine. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's with a little bit more uh, fine-tuning, but that's the, that's the area where people need to be because that's the way it always worked in the past and it always has worked. That's the way the dog evolved, particularly yeah. over recent times. But And there's lots of science behind that too. The science behind it is, is, is fearsomely complex. But if you follow basic principles, you don't need to know the science. Mm. Um, I mean, for example, just, just taking the word, the, the word the dog is, is an opportunist, he's a scavenger, he's a, he's a carnivore. He's also he's a carnivore with omnivorous leaning, so he can eat some vegetable material, but the vegetable material has to be as if it's the gut contents of an animal, so totally ground up, so that all the cell walls are broken down, releasing the uh, cell, cellulose cell walls and releasing the contents of the cell. And then um, that, that's the way that it is. If you ferment it, even better. So some fermented food, some vegetable material in season, broken down, not necessarily the starchy stuff or, or 
probably not a lot of the starchy stuff at all because dogs didn't evolve that way. You've just got to look at the way they evolved and mimic the diet that they ate over, over a, a season or over a year and whatever's locally available from your supermarket, anybody can do it with a few instructions. And that's what my books and my lectures have been all about. Very much shopping around the edges of the supermarket, not in the center. Yeah, yeah. And then a lot, the, the hidden agenda behind all of this um, is that people say to me, and all those wake up and realize, I say, does this apply to us? Of course it applies to us. Yeah. We're all the same. Yeah. We're all evolved in the same way. Um, and, you know, and very much that I, I, people say, oh, so it's a wolf diet. I say, no, no, no. Now, we, our dogs evolved on from the wolf. They became more scavengers. They became more coprophagic, more feces-eating since then. And, and there's, there's a story behind how that evolved too. Um, they're more vegetarian than the wolf. Um, and the, their whole physiology has changed in many ways, but not their digestive and metabolic physiology. Like they've, they've changed physiology in terms of their breeding cycle, whereas the wolf might breed once a year or does. Dogs have cycled now to feed to breed twice a year, oh. and they've changed their mindset too. Uh, it's a we scientists or, or not we scientists. I, well, I, can, I suppose I'll put myself in that category. Um, it's called neoteny, where, where uh, juvenile trains trays are retained into adulthood, uh, and that's in some dogs that that's, that that particular genetic tray is more than others, and. Um, for example, a Cavalier King Charles is, is more neotenized than, say, a Rottweiler or a Doberman. They retain more adult characteristics in, into their adulthood. But these are, the, these are the significant changes that occurred. And, and there's a book, a uh, fellow, Raymond Coppinger, he's only passed away recently, and he wrote a book on this called Dogs, and he explained how over the last 15,000 years, between 10 and 15,000 years, as mankind changed from hunting and gathering to a more settled rural lifestyle where they became farmers and began to grow grains and domesticate livestock. Uh, they were in their villages or outside each village, there'd be a rubbish dump formed from all the rubbish and the wolves would actually ah. congregate around there. This process whereby these wolves were becoming friendlier, they were actually living in closer contact with humans and their um, flight distance, which which is also equivalent to friendliness in a way, became shortened. And we now know it's biologically been shown, or it's been shown by not quite in a number of instances with a canid, dog-like species, any dog-like species that becomes more friendly, they start to become changed. The genetic traits for this short flight distance for friendliness are linked to coat colour, body shape, like... Uh, the shape of the head, the shape of the mouth, the dentition, all of these things are related to, they're born on the same genes that, that re relate to friendliness. And this wow. is how the wolf evolved into a dog. Uh, and just by spending time with humans becoming, by humans, in fact, it wasn't humans, it was the dump that was selecting, according to Raymond Coppinger, uh, that was selecting for these dogs that were more friendly because that's where they tended to congregate and breed. This was shown actually by a group of silver foxes in Russians in Russia where they were breeding them for their coats and the handlers were sick of being bitten. So they started selecting these silver foxes for more friendly types, oh. but it buggered up the coat. Uh, the, the friendlier ones have started to wag their tails, but over time, those friendlier ones have interbred 
and and their coat colour changed, and, and their um, their face dentition, everything changed over a, wow. over a very short period of time. So we now know that that's within the canid group. This yeah. potential to change appearance with change in mindset uh, wow. by by selecting for those. Now I've <laughs> I've talked a mouthful here, but um, obviously since my first foray into realising the connection between diet and health, good diet equals health, and and, and realising what a good diet was, that it was basically the diet an animal evolved to require, very very simply. It's like over the years I've um, put in or recommended that we use um, things like yogurt or, or kefir and that sort of thing as a fermented food, so living organisms to, for oh. the microbiome. More recently, I've joined with a, a, a group called Gussie's Gut. Um, this is a fellow called Bob Ryan, Rob Ryan, I should say, not Bob, Rob, Rob Ryan. His dog Gussie was having problems. He'd actually consulted me years ago about raw and had been feeding raw ever since. This dog he got was having a few gut problems and he started feeding him fermented food and things improved. So he contacted me and he said he, what he was doing, said he was starting a company. And so I've actually joined with him, helping him develop fermented food because this the fact today that modern pet foods, particularly, well, people are mortally afraid of bacteria. That's, 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 that's the issue. They, they, they see bacteria as the enemy. Um, so... Even the uh, processed raw manufacturers, or the manufacturers of raw pet food, now are having to do a kill step for kill all bacteria in the food, which kind of defeats a lot of the purpose of raw food. Because one of the best sources of a microbiome that is healthy is found in the raw meat and, and so on that we recommend as part of the evolutionary nutrition of a dog. Anyway, so that's why I'm sort of particularly interested in this. Um, fermented idea dogs often don't like this strangely enough and i would have thought they did but a lot don't like sauerkraut uh, and some of those fermented vegetables so what uh, what rob's doing is is actually putting in some uh, fermented cheese or well, all cheese is actually fermented but um just to make it more attractive and, and the dogs are loving it and it's also he's actually seeing some dramatic improvements in health uh, these have been some raw-fed dogs, but mostly in dogs that are being fed um, processed pet food. I mean, the, the ones being fed raw food properly are usually doing fairly well, but even those are showing some improvements. Anyway, that's sort of by the by of what I'm, one of the things I'm currently involved in. But the important issue here is that dogs being coprophagic, that's, that's a lot of what, where they receive a lot of their nutrition. And we have to try and mimic that with foods that are more palatable or more socially acceptable to us. Yeah. Um, dogs, you know, if you went out yourself and got something out of the kitty litter and fed it to your dog, that, that's really not yeah. something that's socially acceptable these days. No. <laughs> Whereas if you, if you want to feed a, a bit of um, either fermented vegetables of some sort, or such as the one that's being made, or quite a few being made now, um, some some high-quality protein as found in eggs, uh, some fish oil for DHA and EPA, the essential fatty acids and so on, then, then that's perfectly okay, even a B-complex supplement, all, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, the, so the, the basic diet is quite simple, and these supplements I actually talked about in Give Your Dog a Bone way back when, but that's that, 
you did ask me my background. I guess I've told you. Well, we've so, yeah, yeah. No, that well, that's great because yeah, you've 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 gone right through my my list to the next point, and it's actually quite fitting. Is where we we talk about the raw and that that style of diet where there's now people doing the cooked version of the raw diet for what you've just said. Um, and their argument being that raw has potential bad bacteria where cooked eliminates that, but you get all the benefits. So I suppose, tell me if I'm wrong, it's probably fair to say that, as you mentioned, if you're going for the raw versus the cooked, be it with the same ingredients, you're going to get a lot more beneficial bacteria potentially still in the raw form. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, yeah. it's what our dogs are designed to eat. And not only that, by cooking the food, even gently cooking it, you are changing the nature of the food. It's not what they evolved to require. It's yeah. going to be a whole lot better than that dreadful stuff that vets recommend and sell and people use, and it's causing so many problems. Yeah. But, it's, yeah. you know, if you, if you want the maximum bang for your buck, then, then go for the real stuff. Um, this all stems from America. Um, Australians have had, we've had a fairly laissez-faire attitude towards this over the years. It's never really worried them. But recently it has because, of course, we, we Australians are now become increasingly Americanised, or mm. have been for years or decades, but because of our, uh, the content, for example, of our TV and, and everything is, is largely or to a large degree American. So we're, we're certainly influenced enormously by that. But the fear of bacteria is just um, what it is. It, it's a hysterical fear with little foundation in fact. Because we now know, I mean, all the advanced immunology studies show that if you deprive the immune system of something, that's one of the reasons we have for all the autoimmune diseases. If it's got nothing to attack, it, it's kind of like somebody is bored. And what, well, what, I've got all this energy. What am I going to go and attack? I mean, that's pretty... Yeah. Um, and then it turns on itself. Good. Yes, it turns on itself. It turns yeah. on, on the nearest thing. And so and if something looks... A little bit like it might have a, a if you're getting more scientific, if it has a amino acid sequence that is close to something that it is designed to attack, and that, that amino acid sequence happens to be part of a normal bodily protein, then you this is your autoimmune disease kicking in. Wow. And we're seeing more and more of that as we get this huge fear. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's like the old thing, what you fear most, you often draw to you. Mm. Um, so fear, fear is a problem because... Yeah. It's 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 a fear that is not based in any sort of real science because the real science tells us that we evolved a from all these organisms. We our basic cellular structure, each cell, is has seen a thing called a mitochondria. Mitochondria is actually um, it's actually a living organism, and it's in every cell. The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. It's actually a um, an intracellular parasite that was picked up. 600 million years ago, scientists seem to believe this might have occurred only once. That's hard to believe, but it may have done. And instead of being a parasite that was killed by the organism it invaded, and instead of it being an organism that did dreadful things, over a period of, well, literally hundreds of millions of years, this organism, Actually, this, this happened well before 600. This, this happened probably two and a half billion years ago. That's right. I'm, I've got, got to get the right sequence of events here. It was around about two and a half billion years ago, this, this intracellular parasite, a bacteria, 
invaded a cell of what what we now know as an archaea. These are the sort of cells that live in thermo regions of the world. They they live all over the world, but um, they're another group of organisms that that are there. They're in our gut. They're everywhere. We've only recently identified them around about the 1960s, 70s anyway. But these two organisms came together. And to make a long story short, the the the, um, bacteria that invaded the archaea said to the archaea, so we may anthropomorphizing this a bit, but um, if I produce power, will you look after me and feed me? So the, the, the bacteria in the cell, in the archaea, became the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. And this is, this is the union that occurred that allowed multicellularity because now these cells had enough energy to actually join together. And so multicellularity arise again. That's a long story. Multicellular animals, this is the point I was getting towards, have always lived in this milieu of bacteria. The microbiome is all around us. We, you and I are surrounded by bacteria. We live in bacteria. We can't live without them. If we, if we eliminate all the bacteria from our gut, our, our immune system is gone. Um, they affect our brain function. They affect our ability to, to defeat degenerative disease. Our microbiome, and, and this is science is only just discovering this natu- naturopaths have known this probably for 30, 40, 50 years, but science is now catching up and, and realizing that they were right. Um, that these microorganisms that live in us are actually part of us, they're our friends. And the immune system is not there to destroy them, the immune system there is there to allow us to live in harmony with them. And if you think about evolution, again, getting back to that. Why, why would we evolve in this system? How would we evolve? We've evolved so that we can live in harmony with these organisms. And so the immune system is not there to destroy them. It's there. If one of them gets out of kilter, yes, it'll be like a parent and slap it down. And if the, if the organism becomes the unruly child that, that can't be slapped down, then, then we have disease. But that's what it's there for. And um, so we, li- we should... It's an irrational fear. It's a non-scientific fear. And, of course, the food industry or the regulators, they because they, well, if you go to America, everything is, is litigation. So um, we have to remove any potential source of litigation so we get rid of bacteria because there are potential pathogens in there. But that's not the true biological system. We actually... If, if there's no salmonella, E. coli, campylobacter in the food, then the, then the organism never learns to deal with those things. So should they come across them, then suddenly this is in an, an, an overwhelming amount, and, of course, that will be a problem. So the, the organisms are healthier if they are actually able to contact pathogens in small numbers, in normal what I call normal amounts within their food and elsewhere, and learn how to deal with them, how to live in harmony with them. And that, that's what our immune system is all about. But, of course, we have, most of us live with an outdated idea that the bacteria in, a, in the world are our enemies and we have at all costs to fight them. Yeah. Well, we do. We have barriers and, and we have ways of dealing with them and living with them, but we actually need them. So if, if we shift then into the dry food market, uh, which obviously is huge on convenience, um, and, and now there seems to be the, the way the majority of dogs are fed today. Yes, yes yeah, yeah. And we've got now, I suppose you could say, a two-tiered uh, dry food 
um, structure where you've got your supermarket ones that are predominantly a cereal grain based product, and then they're filled with byproducts as the next one after that, and then it seems to be chicken meal rather than you know, the pure meat first, it's everything. And then there's a bit of meat. If there was some left on the floor, that got thrown in as well. And that that's, I suppose, your, your uh, mainstream dry food. And then now you've got uh, like the top tier ones that come in and they've got meat, you know, single protein as the first ingredient. And they've got your hemp oils, your coconut oils. And no doubt they're going to be better, but are they still a way off the, I suppose going back to uh, you know a traditional bath paddy as such. Well, are we talking about raw food here, or still with cooked and dried? Well, we'll we'll, we'll probably compare, say, the raw against your dry food. Your top end dry food with um, yeah yeah top end dry food supposedly good stuff. Okay, well, let's just concentrate on two 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 factors there. One, they're cooked. Yep. Yep. So already we're on that. That palate now. So already yeah. we've destroyed a lot of nutrition, and and by cooking things, you are causing chemical reactions between components that does that do not happen in raw food. Right. Cooking causes yeah. chemical reactions, and so you, you're actually producing toxins, you're producing carcinogens, you're producing things that are foreign to what the dog has evolved to require, and and I'll get back to. So the, the, cooking, the cooking process itself has many, many problems, and I've only just sort of touched on the surface of it. But yeah. there's another possibly even greater problem. Most of these dry foods, or all of them actually, um, are based on carbohydrates. So the principal energy source of these foods is carbohydrates. That's the problem. Now, what do carbohydrates do? Well, as soon as they get into the bloodstream, they turn into sugar. Yep. So basically, you're feeding a diet, and most of the, even the, the, the top-end products would be about 40% of these starch, basically, which when it gets into the, into the system, uh, into, into the bloodstream, or actually it's digested and passed into the bloodstream as glucose. So you're immediately raising blood glucose levels. Glucose drives inflammation. It also drives the production of insulin because insulin has got to be there to lower that blood glucose. So it also drives obesity because where does it go? It goes into fat stores. Um, and the other thing it drives is these things called N-glycated or glycated end products where glucose combines with protein, it combines with fats to produce these useless compounds. This is a non-enzymatic combination between glucose and important components in the body that literally bugger up and, and, and gum up the works within the body. So over time, these glycated end products are part of the reason that we have, for example, kidney failure, because they literally get into the pores of the filtration system in the kidney and, and block them up. And cause they are part of the problem that leads to kidney failure. But, the, but also, it's the inflammation caused by the presence of high in, insulin levels and high glucose that drives every degenerative disease process. Yeah. And so we, and it really is very simple. There's lots of science to show what's going on. And, and of course, the uh, imbalance between omega-3s and omega-6s yeah. is part of the problem. The fact that the um, you're using cooked fats, which are very... If you, got, if you cook a polyunsaturated fat, you, you oxidise it and it then becomes dangerous. Yeah. And... 
the body wants pure, raw, non-damaged um, polyunsaturated fats. So that's part of the problem. So, so you're doing all these terrible things, and then you dr- to actually produce inflammation. Oh, sorry, to to damage the body, and then you then you throw inflammation on the top of it, and inflammation just drives every degenerative disease process. And the thing is, nobody asks the question. Hang on, now all the vets, what's lined up? The dog is is the sickest animal on the earth today, and you can it has to be because you can judge that by the amount of vet visits. Dog owners go to the vets, take their dogs to the vets. It's enormous, and the problems just are never ending. And you, and you get them off that food and you start to feed them real food and they start to improve. And, and I have a very simple analogy, it's, it's, and others have used it too, but if you have a new car, so this is your puppy, your new car, what do you put in your new car? Do you buy used up damaged spare parts? Do you used up old sump oil? Do you use, do, do, is that what you do? You, you put in fuel that, that's, that's been contaminated with something else or... Do you put in what the manufacturer recommends? You know with your car, if you do what the manufacturer recommends and have it serviced at regular intervals, it's going to last you. Yeah. If you put in all that rubbish, it's going to break down. Well, yeah. it's exactly the same situation with our pets. The manufacturer, which is evolution or God, whatever you want to, whichever way you want to put it, but let's say evolution, the manufacturer recommends that these are the foods that, that evolved in sync with the genome that you're dealing with. So we're talking about science here. These foods, they, they evolved in, in, in concert with that. These are the foods you should feed. Now, this brings us back to another point. If you feed those foods, the body has what's called homeostatic mechanisms. These have been developed again. These are cybernetic controls based over millions of years of evolution. This is the way the, the planet's life on this planet evolved, these checks and balances, but it only works with the food that you evolved to eat, these cybernetic checks and balances. And so you can feed a food that you might actually analyse and say, well, it's only marginal, what does it say for manganese? But the body will take out the manganese it requires. If there's too much, obviously there are going to be toxic levels if there can be toxic levels, but in an ordinary food, it will take out, and if there's a little bit too much, it won't, it'll reject it. Same with calcium. So real foods, the homeostatic mechanisms, as long as you're in that horrible American term ballpark of, what, of where you should be, um, then it will work because the body's homeostatic mechanisms know how to work with real food. If they're the sorts of foods, it evolved eating. It's, and, and that's the simplicity of it. So I've got another another one uh, for you to throw at you here. So you've got a big, big trending thing today is the hypoallergenic. There's dogs that have reactions, so they feed single origin proteins or you, the dog can't have potato and the dog can't have. There's all these specifics, and a lot of them come down to they play very heavy on the single protein. So you're buying just a lamb-based food, just a chicken. And what I've noticed is with the 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 raw diet, and you mentioned this at the start, is it's an all-encompassing. It's got bits of fat from lamb, from chicken, from all various sources. How does this play out in your experience with with a dog that is branded as saying it's allergic to to lamb or kangaroo? Is it changed the game when it's it's non-cooked? Absolutely it does, yes. The cooked proteins are totally different in their structure and their allergenic or their antigenicity. 
to raw proteins. But not only that, um, single protein diets are very beneficial if you are trying to separate out, and this will be a dog usually that's been fed on processed pet food from an early age. He's got an allergy to whatever, maybe. Although a lot of things that are called allergies are simply just reactions to all that inflammatory food and the wrong food. But you can use a single protein diet. Okay. And it's got to be a novel, not a novel protein. So you've got this animal, he's itchy. And let's say that he does have a true allergy to something, but we don't know what it is. But he's been fed a range of foods. But let's say this dog has never in its life eaten pork. So you would get a single protein diet that contained just pork. If he didn't react to that and he actually got better, well, most owners would probably say, well, I'm never going to feed anything else. This dog's getting pork yeah. for the rest of his life. That may not be a good idea, but yeah. um, anyway. Uh, but the idea is, okay, we've signaled that out. Now, has this dog ever had kangaroo? No, I don't think so. All right. Take him off the pork. Let's feed him kangaroo for six weeks. Oh, he's still good. Oh, wow. So he can eat pork and kangaroo. So that's the function of single protein diets to delineate where there is an allergy. Right. But to stick with them, you may, in the end, develop. this dog may, in fact, develop an allergy if you stick with that single protein diet forever. It may, may get a problem because there may be something else in that food that will trigger something he's already got a tendency to, to be that way whether it's genetic or whether it's something something that's epigenetic something that's been happened to his genes that forces them to react in this particular way over his particular lifestyle you don't know so in those cases you're better off to find as many proteins that he doesn't react to and then rotate them right or, or feed them in combination if you want to it doesn't yeah. matter but 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 Variety is is the spice of life. Again, yeah. and that that old saying is very true because variety, particularly from a young age, you're teaching a dog to eat a variety of foods. So, because there's a window before it's under about four months of age, when a dog is very accepting of a whole host of stuff, and then and dogs more so than cats would be very accepting throughout their life too. Cats can be particularly problematic, but that's dealing with cats. But with dogs. Um, it is a good idea to feed a wide variety of foods earlier. It's great for their, their immune system to get used to all that stuff, and it's great for them uh, mentally to get to get used to all this stuff. But yeah. those single protein diets really are great for diagnosis. Yeah, but I wouldn't recommend them as a sole way to feed yeah. a dog for the rest of its life. I would try to get them onto as many proteins as possible, and usually it has to be what what is referred to as a novel protein. That is a protein that they haven't had prior. Right. You okay. hope. Right. Because if they haven't had it, then it can't have a trigger an allergic reaction. It has to be some an allergic reaction is triggered to something that, that has been fed previously. But again, those allergic reactions usually come out of something that's been malnourished with processed pet food in the first place. Yeah, and I, I'm tell me if I'm wrong. Typically, it's a grain based when you're getting your grains yeah. and your yeah, and yeah. rice and, well, and, and and. and Speaking of grains, um, particularly uh, barley, oats, wheat, or rye, particularly wheat, not, not corn because it's got no gluten, but barley, oats, wheat, rye all have gluten, and there's a lot of gluten intolerance in our dogs, just as in us, Pro- probably more so. Wow. But okay. it's not necessarily causing, causing celiac disease, which is buggering up all the villi. 
not wiping them out basically, but but causing other problems in the body. So, so that's the, and we now know that gluten doesn't only just cause celiac disease; it causes other problems as well. And so this is all this is all part of the story of processed food. But you know, it's so simple: don't feed dogs food to which for which they weren't designed. These foods are only fed because they're a cheap source of energy. That's yeah. all. Yeah, and it's exactly and for the most part, they don't appear to cause problems in the short term, and the problems they do cause are rarely linked to them. It's yeah, that simple. Until somebody says, "Hey, why don't you just go and feed us some chicken wings, mate? See what how it goes for a week." Oh, it's improving. Good grief. Yeah, yeah, and look, the other thing too that this is probably more around the food industry as such, um, you know, at a manufacturing level, is. Um, it's hard enough for humans to find chickens that haven't been um, in horrid conditions and injected with chemicals and, and living in a cramped cage in a dark factory somewhere. And obviously, if we struggle to find a quality of food, it's the pet food that they're going to be getting is below that again. Now, no doubt if if um, these pet food companies are swooping up all of the sick and, and chickens that have died and grinding them up into dry food, that on its own is going to be causing a range of issues that is going to just transfer back through the food into the dog. Well, um, yes, but mainly because they are so, not so much because the chicken was raised in bad conditions, but more because of the way it's been treated since. Since um, that, so right. The, the cooking and the rendering. Because every all of these processed pet food companies, whether they're the high end or the short end, they all end up, getting the same chicken meal, which is basically chicken that has been rendered to death, just cooked and cooked and cooked. Some are even using chicken feathers, would you believe, as a source wow. of protein. Uh, yes, oh, it's, it's horrendous what they're using. This, this anything to cut the feed, the, the cost, and then they just throw in a whole heap of um, supplements in, in the way of... Oh, to boost it up, synthetic and, supplements, yeah. cheap, easily yeah. controlled, fill it up. Badger, off that's, you go. That's, that's, that's it. And then, of course, to make kibble, you have to throw in a heap of carbohydrates. In. The, the kibble is actually, apart from its energy-producing abilities for the animal, it's also there to make the kibble because that's what helps the, the um, little pellets to expand. It helps the manufacturing process. You require it. And, of course, the, the lower end, I didn't realise this. Um, somebody told me the other day, they're up to 70% carbohydrates, so basically 70% yes. sugar. Yeah. The, yeah. the better ones, probably 40% sugar. But so, that's hardly know, a recommendation. When you look at the ones that uh, I suppose well, a few years ago now, the trend came with the log base. You know, they were like a like a log of meat wrapped in plastic that's and you would is. slice it off. Now well, that, Are we talk about cooked food now? Or? Well, that would be now cooked. Now, what I, I find interesting with that is that you can buy that from Woolies and the expiry date is so far ahead. And I, I just can't connect that when I buy something at the, the fridge that's next to it that we're going to eat, you've got at best until the end of the week to deal with it. But yet this, this log, this sausage log, it's almost indefinite. Yeah. If it doesn't rot immediately, it's not good for you. Yeah. That's, Whatever that's they've done, whether they've whether it's been cooked to the point that, that there's zero enzymes or zero bacteria or just, it just can't rot, or whether it's been filled with industrial chemicals that prevent it from rotting, um, yeah. none of it's any good. 
So that, I suppose then we're all leading to the, to, the, to the end goal is transitioning. So a lot of people would probably now be in a point of going, all right, well, I'm going to transition across. I'm going to be done with the dry food or done with the sausage base or the tins. Um, the best way to transition without having a dog that's going to, you know, have an upset stomach, is it, is it going to be that two-week period, one-week period of, of, you know, 20%, 30% just introducing? Uh, is it yeah, a bath patty? That's really the how long is a piece of string question. So you're just playing it based on the reaction you get from the dog. That's right. Most dogs will transition across straight away. Brilliant. Stop that awful food. Give them 24 hours without food. Start the new food in a small amount. And I generally say start with chicken wings. Okay. Just just some chicken wings. And if you're concerned, have them ground up first uh, so that they don't decide to because they're so hungry and so pleased that you've suddenly woken up to the fact that that's what they should be fed. They'll gulp it down. If it's, a two, if it's just the right size to um, fit in their trachea, well, that, that's not a good outcome. Right, yes. So <laughs> if, you, if you are concerned about that and if you find that's, I mean, a lot of, a lot of um, I've had people tell me, yes, we, the first time we fed the chicken wing, we were on the speed dial to the vet and we handing it over and, and usually nothing happens. But it's not a bad idea if, if your dog is a gulper and you know your dog's yeah. a gulper, then actually do it a bit more slowly. In other words, fill his stomach up with something else before you try those chicken wings. But look, oh, okay. yeah. I do understand that what happens is that almost invariably some of these dogs will develop a gut issue and they'll have diarrhoea. If, if you're living in a backyard, that's not so bad. You can water yeah. it in yeah. and what have you. If you're living in a unit and, and, and you haven't been able to get out quick enough to take that dog for a walk and you're a bit shamed about him doing um, poo all over the footpath, then, then probably a slow transition. But yeah. I think the, the big thing is if your dog does have gut issues, somehow get through it because they will get through it. And it'll be better for it at the end. It will be better yep. in the long run. Don't let that be the issue that stops you feeding raw because that's very transient. It's very short term. And that is one of the reasons really why I say start off with chicken wings because generally they start or chicken necks, they, they produce a very firm stool because of all ah. that uh, calcium and bone in them. They produce a lovely firm stool. Okay. Uh, not an issue. So the other thing that you could do um, is start off with a bath patty. I mean, that's not a bad way to start either. But, yeah. you know, it's horses for courses. You, you, and, and half the time you don't know. But yeah. the majority of dogs will go straight into this. The other thing that some people do is to feed some fermented food to try and prepare the gut bacteria okay. for dealing with this food. But, yeah. look, the gut bacteria changes really quickly anyway when you feed real food that's raw because it already contains the bacteria. And that's one good thing that the law can't stop us from doing, or not yet anyway, <laughs> can't stop us from feeding some raw meat to our dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Big Brother is not yet watching us to that point. Although it may They're happen, closing you know. in, but yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. No, look, that's that's great. That's that's a good message, I guess, to, to wrap up with too, because um, everyone would no doubt be at that point wondering now how to, because obviously it's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer that you want to end up on that path if you're not already on it, That's yeah, right. for the love of for the love of your dog. Yes. So, so yeah. any gut issues, go with it. The, the bones will usually sort. The chicken wings and necks will usually sort it out. And 
there's no, I know, look, I, I took my dog to the vet once and, and we across two visits and I had one vet say to me, well, we see so many dogs with um, bones stuck in their stomach, so we don't recommend bones. And as she left the room, the, the other vet said, look, I don't agree with what she's saying. Just make sure they're the right bones. It's like, oh, my God, I'm in the same room. And within 30 seconds, I've been told, turn left, turn right. Well, look, there are two, two issues here with the vet, the first vet. First vet doesn't know anything about this. The first vet has probably x-rayed a lot of raw-fed dogs and seen bones in the stomach and got horrified. Well, that's where they're going to go, mate. Um, and the stomach is full of acid, which actually helps dissolve those bones, and they, they often remain there for days. Some of those vets have actually gone to the, to the point, and I've seen this happen too, happened recently with a, with a neighbour, um, they will give them a $10,000 operation and remove yeah. those bones. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they've x-rayed them, because they're usually x-raying for something else, and they've spot. oh, my God, you do. or the dogs maybe, maybe had a bit of a reaction to something and vomited. Well, it's natural for dogs to vomit too. Now, the other thing is this. Vets will say, oh, I do these operations six days a week on dogs that, that have eaten bones. So I say, now, they're lying. And they're lying with the best of intentions because they actually believe what they were taught by the pet food companies yeah. when they were a student, that bones are dangerous. So they feel it's in the best interest of their clients to tell little porkies to stop them feeding bones because they sincerely believe that bones are bad. Minimise the risk. Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's, that's uh, and, but your other vet, number vet number two, that vet is obviously feeding bones or uh, realises that, that, that it's a natural biological fact that, um, dogs eat bones. I mean, for goodness sake, why do dogs fight over bones? Why do they want them? That's another reason some people don't yeah. feed bones because the dogs fight over them. Well, you've got to separate them if that's the case when you've yeah. got bones around. Yeah, yeah, common sense <laughs> again. Of course, keeps coming the fact back. They fight over them is telling you something. Nothing happens in biology. Um, nothing happens in biology that, that isn't related to evolution. You know, it yeah. hasn't got an evolution. Evolution tells us that, or, or over time, dogs have required bones. No, Give look, your dog a bone. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will certainly direct people to your books um, and, and no doubt they'll be now chasing the bath patties as well. Um, so, yes. yeah, look, look, thanks very much. That's been, it's, that's been a great conversation to have with you. I appreciate all your insight and your information. Well, thank you for giving the opportunity to um, get some of it out because uh, I'm beginning to realise that uh, it needs to go out again, that uh, there's a lot of information being lost over the years yeah. or distorted. So, so thank you for the opportunity yeah. to uh, give that information. Thanks, Ian. I really appreciate your time and hopefully we do get to catch up again. Thank you. Thanks, thanks. a lot. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me. If you do like the show, please do share it or tell someone else about it. It is the only way the show is going to grow. Um, they also tell me that if uh, if you do give it a five-star review, it will help other people find it. So if you are in a position to give it a five-star review, that would be really appreciated. As always, thanks very much for sticking to the end of the episode. If you did want to find out more or you wanted to go to one of uh, Dr. Ian Billinghurst's books, I will list them on the website, bumpingintoo.com.au. There's also all of the past episodes are there, which cover a whole range of topics and different types of people across all different industries and stories. So there's plenty of information on the website if you are curious. And I will speak to you on the next one.